podcasting from the Chicagoland area. This is Game On with Jackson Stewart, where we discuss men's lifestyle, focusing on sex, fitness, relationships, business, and more. We'll be interviewing the best of the best, the hot shots, and the rising stars in the worlds of modeling, fitness, cooking, and more. Influencers who are discussing keeping it sexy while at the top of their game. I'm your host, Jackson Stewart. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the game. Follow Game On with Jackson Stewart on YouTube at Game On with Jack, on the official blog www.gameonwithjack.blog, and at the new store www.gameonwithjack.shop. Keep it sexy and game on. What if you could be a better player for the cost of one more cup of coffee a month? Get access to a growing library of lit erotica, behind-the-scenes action, and player's guides with tips on drinking, cooking, fitness, dating, sex, and life after dark. Low tier rate while offer lasts. Patreon.com. Game on with Jack. Keep it sexy and game on. This is Dale Valor. This is Pamela Ross. This is Trinesia. And you're listening. And you're listening to Game On with Jackson Stewart. To Game On with Jackson Stewart. Game On with Jackson Stewart. Killing them. Seen by many as entertainment and more still see it as relief. The usage of sexual material may be at an all-time high. However, porn addiction is more than just dirty movies, websites, and magazines. This aspect of the game is less about sex and more about trauma and pain. Tonight, we are fortunate enough to navigate these potential difficult waters with our guest. Joshua Shea is a pornography addiction expert. He's a certified betrayal trauma coach, a therapeutic disclosure specialist, and the author of four books about pornography addiction, which also focus on the trauma partners feel when learning their loved one has an issue with porn. Since 2018, Joshua has given numerous interviews about pornography addiction and betrayal trauma. To date, he has internationally appeared on nearly 400 podcasts, television, and radio shows, using his wealth of research and personal story to promote the ideas that porn addiction spans all demographics, and those with a problem should seek help before it is too late. He also speaks extensively about the issue of working through betrayal trauma, especially with the partners of addicts and those who are facing infidelity. Prior to admitting his 24-year addiction to pornography and 22-year addiction to alcohol, in 2014, Joshua was a prominent magazine publisher, award-winning journalist, film festival founder, and politician in Central Maine. In 2017, Joshua launched RecoveringPornAddict.com, which morphed into today's PAddictRecovery.com. He has also contributed articles about recovery to TheFix.com and Recovery Today magazine. He is also a TED Talk speaker and has developed and presents a porn addiction educational presentation series for colleges, churches, libraries, and other groups. His books include He's a Porn Addict, Now What? in 2019, 
Porn and the Pandemic, How Three Months in 2020 Changed Everything, released in July of 2020, and The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy Relationships, released in 2018. Joshua Shea is also our guest this evening. All right, guys, you've heard the introduction and bio. Now join me in welcoming to Game On, the insightful and knowledgeable Joshua Shea. Joshua, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for inviting me on your show, Jackson. Thank you so much for being a guest. I'm super excited about this topic. Um, and let's just hop right into it. First up, can you let the audience know what name and what social media platform or websites they can find you by? Yeah, the two uh, biggest ones you can find me on are TikTok and Instagram, where you'll find me under the name on both that corn coach, corn like the vegetable, because in the online world, we're not able to write the word porn out without getting banned. So the word corn has kind of become a code word uh, for pornography. So I am available at that corn coach, either of those, either Instagram or TikTok. And I can be found on my website, which is the letter P and then the words addictrecovery.com. So that's P addictrecovery.com. And if you search my name on uh, Amazon, you will find uh, the books that I've written there. Joshua, where did you grow up? I grew up in central Maine. Um, I was born in 1976. My parents were school teachers my entire life. We never moved, but every summer was spent uh, traveling around the country. And uh, I still have that travel bug to this day. And so jumping right into it, and as the audience heard in the bio, and also if they look up your website, you you're a journalist you're a writer you've uh you're a speaker but how did you get let's start with just how did you find yourself in the arena of porn addiction and i feel like porn addiction can be an arena because it feels like a, a gladiator battle i'm sure for many people but how did you find yourself in that topic either personally and then if you found yourself in that topic personally how did you move to it professionally where you said, you know what, not only am I feeling better and am I sober, because I know uh, that's another aspect of what we're going to talk about, but now I want to go out here and, and do this professionally and, and take the good word to other people. Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you, when I started porn addiction um, and betrayal trauma, which happens to partners, uh, it, it was a half-empty filled arena, and now it is a completely sold-out stadium with how much it's blown up over the last 10 years. Um, my story is very, very typical as far as porn addiction goes. Um, I became a porn addict at 12 years old when my older cousin showed me uh, some hardcore magazines for the first time. I, for years and years, did not know why I felt like I was addicted the second I saw it. But later on, I learned about the connection to the trauma of some sexual abuse that happened when I was young at the hands of a babysitter. Seeing that hardcore pornography for the first time several years after the abuse ended, um, what I think it did to me was normalize it. It made it okay. It made it, it didn't make it something shameful. It didn't make it something I couldn't talk to anybody about because here in a glossy magazine in front of me are grown-ups doing that stuff. And for some reason, it 
just clicked for me and I felt like I had uh, discovered something that was going to help me the rest of my life. That was just something different, something special. The only other time I've ever felt like that was two years later, the first time I got drunk at a wedding and was an alcoholic from the word go there. So I then spent the next 24 and 22 years of my life, respectively, as a porn addict and as an alcoholic. Um, at times, doing very well, and at times not doing so well. Um, at the end of it, I went through an extended period of not doing well. People were, I was, I owned two companies. They were starting to fail. I was desperately trying to keep them together. I was worried about my employees and their livelihoods. I was worried about how we were paying bills. I recognized I, I wasn't being a good father or husband. And I made a horrible, horrible decision to pull myself off of medicine I take for bipolar disorder that I that I took for 20 years at that point. Um, I thought that the medicine acted as a restrictor plate, almost like a race car. But And when you take that off, I would have energy. I would have enthusiasm. I would be able to think outside the box and save these companies. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't work. What happened was after about three weeks of the medicine getting out of my system, my alcoholism and porn probably doubled or tripled in use uh, because that's the only way that I could deal with reality. Um, after about a year of this and the companies falling apart more and my relationships falling apart more, I ended up getting, even though I owned one third of one of the companies, I ended up getting fired by the other two thirds owners. Um, despite the fact that I ran the company day on the day to day basis and they were silent investors. Um, at that point, when I got fired the following day, my uh, family and my friends and a couple of others had a very makeshift intervention, uh, unlike what you see on TV. But I guess it did the trick because that was what got me into first alcohol uh, rehab back in 2014. Um, once they I truly understood that uh, addiction was a disease. I understood that my porn use was not just bad decision making when I was drunk, but it was a separate uh, addiction unto itself. And once I understood that, and once I was clear of the alcohol, I went to another rehab, this time in Texas, for sex and pornography addiction. While there, that's when I started to really learn about the trauma behind addictions and how trauma basically uh, when formed in childhood has its fingers in every decision you make every bit of how you develop moving forward and that was fascinating to me so i, I being a journalist and being a journalist who really uh, enjoyed being a researcher i went to work studying this stuff and trying to understand the connection and it was I can read the New England Journal of Medicine and enjoy it, much like I know there are people who read Shakespeare and enjoy it. When I went to the bookstore, I noticed that there were no books about pornography addiction. Plenty about addiction in general, plenty about drugs, plenty about alcohol, cigarettes, but nothing about porn addiction. And I realized 
if I could take my personal story of pornography addiction and the early days of recovery and combine it with the information that are in all of these fantastic academic papers that are never going to be read by anybody, maybe if I could take both of these things, I could create material out there that would uh, cater to the mainstream average person and they would understand this better. So I wrote my first book. Uh, I thought that's all I would do in this industry at all was to put out this book and then move on and see what else I was going to do in my life. After that first book, which was uh, basically autobiographical, um, I got a ton of response, but it wasn't from the porn addicts. It was from their wives. It was from their girlfriends. In some cases, it was from other family members. And what they said, you fixed yourself, so how do I fix this guy? And its I had to say, it's not that easy, but I started to have dialogue with many of these women and found that they were suffering from deep trauma because that, that was triggered in part by their partner's porn use, even more by their partners lying about their porn use. Um, and I realized that my wife had probably gone through some of this as well. It's, it's known as betrayal trauma. And I started to study this side of it and realized that porn addiction, especially in a couple, is only half the story. The betrayal trauma is the other half. So I began to write about betrayal trauma as well. And uh, slowly but surely, the podcast called, the radio shows called, the TV shows called, and I started to do a lot of interviews. Um, I became a pretty much a regular on the circuit, and then I became a regular on the speaking circuit. I would go to colleges or libraries or any other place that would uh, want to hear me and talk about this stuff. Then you fast forward to 2020, the pandemic hits, and nobody wants you at their auditorium because the auditorium's locked up. The speaking world, where I was making most of my money at that point, uh, disappeared. And to this day, three, four years later, it still hasn't truly recovered. When the pandemic started, a good friend of mine who uh, was a licensed or is a licensed marriage and family therapist suggested that I start looking into coaching because I was going on all of the podcasts and giving interviews at that time saying this, this. Uh, pandemic is going to absolutely uh, make pornography addiction and betrayal trauma explode in ways that most people can't even see coming down the line. Um, and he said, well, then you need to, you need to be out there helping people with this. You should try becoming a coach. If you want to stay in this area, and if you want to be paid during the pandemic, try becoming a coach. And so I went and I got certified both as a pornography addiction coach and as a betrayal trauma coach. Later on, I got certified as a uh, therapeutic disclosure specialist. But I started working with people one-on-one, -on -one, and I found that was actually my calling. As much as I enjoy writing, as much as I love standing in front of a bunch of people and making them listen to me, um, working one-on-one -on -one with people has been the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. And that's, that's essentially how I got here today. I'm nine and a half years sober. I've not had a single relapse the entire time. I consider myself a success story, and I... I have, I, I, I love that I have the privilege and opportunity to help other people write their success stories. Well, first and foremost, let me applaud your sobriety because I know that's not easy for people. You know, 
<clears throat> regardless of what their addiction is, sobriety is not easy for, for folks. And I think that we as a society need to continue to humanize the people that are, you know, battling whatever the addiction is. I want to applaud where you are, where you've been and, you know, where you've come from. Let Thank me, you. Let's start with a question that I know is very subjective, but it's a question that I, I got to ask while we're on this topic, because I know people are wondering it, is porn bad? Well, again, subjective is bad. Do you mean morally? Do you mean physically? Do you mean mentally? Um, because these are different answers for everybody. And that's one of the keys is when I first sit down with somebody or really anybody, I was talking with a grad student in Belgium the other day. She's putting together a paper on pornography uh, for her, her uh, grad school thesis. I was saying, you have to define pornography in your mind. What does it mean? What, what power does it hold? Because to me, pornography is just as much about intent as it is the actual uh, media itself. And so is it bad? Well, I can tell you, you know, looking at science, that I have never read a study, and I've probably read two to 300 studies about different aspects of pornography. I have never reached uh, the conclusion of any study that says you are more healthy, you are more happy, you are a more well-adjusted person after using pornography. I think that at, when it comes to the health side of things, at absolute best, you can hope that it's not unhealthy. You can hope that it's just an even type thing. When it comes to uh, what's happening um, as far as morally and your values, I don't usually go down that road in making those decisions. Um, I know that uh, addiction doesn't care about your personal beliefs. Addiction doesn't care about your political beliefs. Addiction doesn't care about your religious beliefs. Um, so in helping people, I really don't make an argument uh, for or against pornography as far as being a bad thing. If you're talking to me, if you're seeking help, then pornography is probably a bad thing for you. And we can look at statistics, especially since the advent of high-speed internet, and see how many more people are viewing, how many more people are addicts, how many more people are reporting problems. We can look at other statistics, just simply like the fall of intercourse rates among people in their late teens and 20s. We can look at uh, rates of things like erectile dysfunction among uh, older teenage boys or men in their early 20s. Um, and I think for me, I can draw a correlation. I can draw a conclusion that por not using pornography is a better thing to do than to use it. But good, bad, that's up to you. So I wanted to ask that question because to bring out what I what I kind of felt was where we were going to go is that this isn't about, you know, your moral take and you being the audience, your moral take on pornography, your beliefs take. But it's when something, anything becomes and Josh, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but when anything becomes dominating your life and it becomes addiction, that's when we got to talk about that it's now a bad thing. 
you know, is porn good or bad? That's up to people to decide. But is porn addiction bad? I think we can all agree porn addiction is bad. Yes, so, there is there is no X, right. Y, or Z addiction that is good. Addiction, by definition, is a negative thing. Right. I love chocolate cake. Can I be addicted to chocolate cake? Hell yes. And that's a bad thing. That's when chocolate cake becomes bad. So I don't want people exactly. to get hung up on, oh, you know, they're going to tell me that porn is right or porn is wrong. No, we're talking about porn addiction. The part where the mom, when, when porn addiction, which I'm sure reaches into other aspects of what's really going on with somebody, um, when it starts to dominate and destroy your life. So can you let her... Well, and I'll, I'll tell you real fast why I also, uh, why I adapted that stance, because I, of course, have my own personal feelings about sure. pornography, as, as I know everybody does. But the reality is the uh, societal or the moral arguments that are made against, against pornography don't work. They've been going on since the 60s and 70s. Right. You know, whether, it's, whether it's the uh, far religious right, whether it's radical left-wing feminists, um, it doesn't matter because that is not going to get somebody to stop using porn. You know, sex trafficking is evil. It's disgusting. It is gross. It is wrong. But I don't think it has ever stopped anybody from using pornography because it doesn't individualize it for them. Sex trafficking is something that takes place on the other side of the world that I don't know anything about, that I don't need to know anything about. And I'm not going to let it affect my porn use. I think most people use that as a justification. So I don't go into those uh, those areas um, of debate. I go into the areas of science because it's really hard to refute that. So when, are, and this might be the just a, a, the basic definition, but when does it become porn addiction? When is it like, okay, now we're talking about this is bad? Because I think people are going to wonder like, oh my God, you know, did, is it because I, you know, I, 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 yeah, I was going to say because I picked up a Playboy, but that seems so like banal. Playboy doesn't even exist yeah. anymore. Yeah. By, by today's standard, it's like I picked up my dad's Playboy from 1985, but they logged onto a website. They, they looked at a video versus porn addiction. Like, when are we talking? This is the moment where now you're, we're talking porn addiction and we're talking trouble. Well, it's important to recognize that addiction is addiction is addiction. I became, a, I truly believe I became a porn addict at 12 years old, partially because I wasn't going to be let into a casino to become a gambling addict. I didn't know where to get cocaine or heroin when I was 12 years old. The store wasn't going to sell me cigarettes. What, what did I have? Right. I had pornography. So I think that's why I feel I fell into that particular uh, addiction. I think it's mostly environmental how you on, on how you uh, fall into a specific addiction. But it's important to remember that, you know, cocaine addiction doesn't take place in the nose. Chocolate cake addiction doesn't take place in the stomach. And porn addiction doesn't take place between my legs. It all takes place in the brain. And I like the 
the you know medical definition of addiction, which is basically any behavior or substance over the long term that changes your mental chemistry and creates and physical chemistry and creates a situation where you feel like you do not have control of your decisions, despite understanding the highly likely negative outcomes. So, what would be the three and correct this question if it, if I'm not phrasing it right because I, I want to make sure that I'm trying to and you're doing an amazing job of boiling it down but I'm trying to boil it down even further into just like bullet points mm-hmm. what are the top three warning signs that a person can have let's say they that tells them that they're on the brink of porn addiction okay. I was going to if say, you were like, going to too far to uh, self be self aware, but right, right, and I would say I would say uh, if you go look at my TikTok, right at the very top, I've pinned a video of the eleven symptoms of pornography addiction. Addiction. Several of them are just ran are just regular addiction symptoms. Some are very specific to porn. I would number one say, are you planning your day around use? Is it a regular part of your day? Does it have have to be part of your routine. Um, that is a big indication. Um, I would say, is it something that you are doing in place of things that you used to find pleasurable instead of sitting and watching the latest movie on Netflix with your wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or husband? Uh, are you now, you know, up in the study looking at pornography? You, you'd almost rather be doing that downstairs, but you have this this draw. Uh, and this urge to do this. So is the behavior replacing former behaviors that were actually more pleasurable in some ways? And then finally, when it comes to pornography use, the number one telltale sign that I see with every addict is that they have to find the perfect piece of pornography to finish a pornography session with. And that often will cause a session to run far longer than someone expects. That will cause a session to, you know, have the person miss miss out on other things. But they as they as they search pornography, they are like a fireworks display with its grand finale, they search for something to finish with that will uh, kick those dopamine receptors in the face harder than even the regular porn that they're watching. They need that something special. Now, one thing I've noticed, I've known addicts in my life, um, friends, family, and and correct me if I'm wrong on this, please. The one thing that I saw they all had in common with an addiction is that whatever they were addicted to had become as much a part of who they were as breathing. And like... Absolutely. It it becomes the most important thing. It becomes the most important thing. And they will will lie, manipulate, you know, cheat, steal, do whatever it is they need to do to get that satiated, especially as the addiction gets hold. Like I said, with pornography addiction, 24 years, with alcohol addiction, 22 years, at the end of it, when I was in the most critical stages, I didn't care what I saw on a screen. It wasn't, it had nothing to do with sex. I didn't care what was in that bottle I was drinking. It had nothing to do with flavor or a good time. 
my brain told me, screamed at me, that I needed these two things on a daily basis, often multiple times daily, or I was going to die. Have you found in your experiences and your studies and your talks that is porn addiction purely a demon, for lack of a better word, or a concern of, the, of a straight male? Or do you see women suffer from it? Do you see homosexual men suffer from it? Yeah, I think the reason that we ask that question is because prior to the internet, pornography, or the pornography industry, I should say, uh, catered to the straight white male. That's who they marketed to. That's who they made their movies for. And that's because it cost a lot of money to make porn back then. It cost a lot of money to distribute porn back then. Porn was an expensive business, much like Hollywood. Porn was an expensive business to be in. Nowadays, you know, you and I being completely separated uh, by time and space, we can still produce, edit, and distribute a porn movie featuring actors we found that day and have it up making money by the end of the day. So the medium by which people use their pornography now, which is the internet, it has allowed access to so many more people so much more easily. So you are seeing genres that are targeting people of color, people of certain uh, sexual persuasions, people, you know, you, you name it, it's out there pretty much. And that's because you can still make money on pornography and target it to a very niche audience these days. You couldn't back then. Conversely, if you look at rates of pornography addiction, while yes, the straight white male is still increasing, you're seeing much faster growth in areas of people with color, of areas of people who have religion, of simply women. You're seeing all of these numbers pop because as it turns out, everybody has these sex organs. Everybody, you know, when I say everybody, 99.99% of us find it exciting when they're stimulated. 99.99% of us like an orgasm. Doesn't matter who we are. It's just that it wasn't something that most people would access in the past. Um, when I started, it took me six months to get my first female pornography addiction client. Now, I would say probably a quarter of my clients are females. And there's really, again, no difference to it because we all have those working parts. The only thing that's different with a woman is that she won't get erectile dysfunction. You know, and the reason why I want to bring that point up is you know, with this topic, I don't want, I don't want listeners to be you know, first, I didn't want them to be turned off by an idea that they thought they were going to get judged about is porn good or bad. And like we said, that's that's up to them and, and their beliefs and their, their growth. But we're talking about addiction when it becomes something that you just do to something that you must have. But I also wanted to talk about that it affects multiple people because we are now making porn addiction an actual addiction discussion rather than something that people might giggle and laugh at like, oh, you like porn. Now, this is, it's like alcoholism. Alcoholism doesn't care what you look like. Care exactly. To, you know, how much melanin you have in your skin. Alcoholism hits every group, no, regardless and no matter of who you are and where you are, porn addiction is no different. 
Can you tell people, and this might seem like a no-brainer question, but I do want to point it out, what are the top three damaging aspects of porn addiction, and what would be the top three steps people can take to start the road back towards recovery? So three damages, three road to recoveries. Well, I mean, it does screw up your priorities, whether that priority is providing for your family, whether that priority is making money, whether that priority is looking out for your health, it, it screws up people's priorities because it rewires the brain. And that's that's one of the worst things is that if, even when you decide it's time to recover, it's a process. It's not like flipping a light switch. It's not like getting over a cold that takes a few days. It is a long, long process because the addiction is not the only problem. In my coaching, the most important thing that I do is to find out why did you become an addict? Spoiler, trauma. But most importantly, why or how did that trauma shape your life? That's the most important thing people have to look at. Um, and, and when they do that, they recognize that the addiction is just a symptom of a bigger problem. And I think that's something a lot of people, that's one of the reasons people won't get help, won't get into rehab, won't go to a therapist, is because they know it's about a lot more than just the addictive behavior itself. Um, and what, was, what were the other three? Oh, um, what was the second half? The second half was, uh, what are three steps that people can take? Let's say they know that they are a porn addict. Well, let's make a twofold question. Um, three steps you can take to recover if you're a porn addict. And then three steps you can take if somebody, you know, let's say your partner is a porn addict. So let's take it from the... Okay, yeah. Number one, number one is admitting it to yourself and understanding that you need help. Okay. And the... That sometimes has to come in the form of recognizing you're not special. Men, women, every color, every religion, like you said earlier about alcohol, we may have some stereotypes about who can be a porn addict. We need to get rid of those. So number one, you have to admit that, yes, you, are a, you fall into that area of porn addiction. And what you're going to see is that it is, it is ultimately the priority in your life. It is what drives you. It is what you can, you know that your mind isn't working the way it's supposed to, but you feel utterly helpless. You don't even know where to begin. You may not even know why you use, you may not see it coming when it's happening uh, or when you're about to use again. You may not be able to tell the telltale signs of it. A lot of us like to bury our heads. So when the word pornography comes up, are you kind of shying away from the discussion? Are you kind of burying your head in the sand because you don't want to see what's there? Conversely, do you get angry or irritated or upset when people talk about pornography or mention pornography to you. There are a lot of things you don't get upset about. Somebody calls me a heroin addict. I kind of laugh because that's so out of the realm of truth. But when people mentioned pornography back in the day, 
I tried to not be part of the discussion. I tried to move away because I thought you could see it in my eyes that I was. Um, I didn't want to be part of that. So that's what that's what happened in my mind, at least, and what's happened in the minds of a lot of my clients. When it comes to the partner or somebody close to the person looking for signs, it's really, really difficult. Um, it's not like you can just look at somebody and see, you can, you can tell when someone's an alcoholic most of the time, you can't tell when somebody is a porn addict. So what I say is, you know, look at their behaviors and look at how they changed. Are they spending far more time in the bathroom than they need to? Is, you know, sex, if you're talking about a partner, is that a chore? Are they more disconnected than ever before? You know, it's it's really hard to spot a porn addict. I hope that science figures out some kind of tell uh, like you find at a poker table. But as of right now, if you're going to uh, get real hard data that your uh, partner is a porn addict, you almost have to go into their phone or into their browser history catch them red-handed and that still doesn't prove that they're an addict there are plenty of people who use this stuff who aren't addicts uh, when i talk to the partners in my betrayal trauma uh, work the pornography isn't the number one problem it's the lying about it that's the number one problem um that this creates a rift in a relationship. Uh, it, it is an area of lies. And whether he's an addict, so he's going to lie about it, or he just doesn't want to hurt her feelings, or he's afraid he's going to get in trouble, whatever it is, that's why the lying exists. And sometimes partners go to lengths, like I said, looking, stealing a partner's phone and going through it. Um, that in my experience with my clients and having sat in different uh, groups uh, as somebody who was in recovery, um, I would say that's the number way it's number one way it's discovered is that there's almost an invasion of privacy because there has to be. Real quick, before we start to wrap up the show, I do want to get your take on, um, you had mentioned earlier, and I think anybody who's done any kind of uh, research or reading in the you know, men's lifestyle and, and relationships and communication, the pandemic did not do anything great for porn addicts and porn addiction. Well, if you're in the industry, it did. Yeah, very true, very true. What did the pandemic do in terms of, you know, the increase in porn use? Was it just because we were all indoors more? Is it because we were separated from 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 society? What what caused that and what did it do? Yeah, it, it, it was that perfect storm of events. You know, uh, consuming pornography is usually something done at home in private. Well, all of a sudden the world shut down. People are at home and in private 24-7 and are having to fill their days. And the only thing on every cable channel is, oh, my God, we're in a pandemic. So if you look at uh, statistics of the biggest websites out there, year to year, nine, uh, 2019 to 2020, the growth of viewership was three and four times what it was the year before. Wow. So we had more people than ever looking at the pornography. But I tell you, I think that the true legacy 
of the pandemic is not on the consumption side of it. I think it's on the production side because what we saw was the the explosion of things like OnlyFans, the explosions of things of campsites like Chatterbait, of people who went there to make money. Because when you think about it, who was affected the most during the pandemic as far as their jobs went? It was mostly service workers. The the waitresses, the hostesses, the bartenders, the retail employees, usually who are young, usually who are outgoing, usually who put a premium on their appearance. Suddenly they can't go to work. What are they going to do? Well, what's been happening for the last 20 years? We've been breaking down all of these, all of these taboos about sexuality and nudity. So the way that, you know, when I was in high school, if there was a picture of a, of a, the head cheerleader in her bikini, you know, that would have been passed around like it was, you know, a golden ticket in Willy Wonka. But now if I want to see the head cheerleader in, in my high school, all I have to do is go look at Instagram because it's almost expected that you're going to find half clothed pictures of everybody on there. And what is the big leap from being on your final day of being 17, showing yourself in a bikini to being your first day of 18 and dropping that bikini top for a lot of people out there, or if you're a guy dropping your shorts for a lot of people out there, it's not a very big leap. And when it comes with dollar signs and not just dollar signs for fun money, but dollar signs that I have to pay my rent. I have to feed myself. I have to feed my kid. Moving into the do-it-yourself pornography realm, uh, it absolutely exploded. On uh, January 1st, 2019, there was roughly 2 million people, uh, I'm sorry, 200,000 people making uh, content on OnlyFans. Within two years, that rose to 2 million. And the most recent stat I saw, uh, which was earlier this year, was that there's now 3.2 million uh, producers of pornography, creators of pornography, who are in the do-it-yourself realm, whether that's OnlyFans or some of the knockoff sites or the cam sites or, or many of those knockoff sites. I believe that the pandemic gave people, especially young people, the green light to make pornography on their own. And that is scary because what I've discovered, both in my research, the the third book I wrote was basically about how the uh, pornography industry changed during the pandemic. Um, But what I have seen is a lot of these people making the pornography while they get into it for the money, what happens is they start to like the attention. They start to like the love. They start to feel good about themselves. This makes them, this is something they want to do because why it gives them a dopamine rush Mm. and what, and, and I believe that, In the next 20 years, and I've seen this even with some of my clients now, in the next 20 years, we're going to be talking about pornography addiction from the producer's point of view, almost as much as the consumer's point of view. I think it's just a different side of the same coin. We never considered because back in the 80s, 
what, a couple hundred people making porn out in California? Yeah. Now, worldwide, we have millions of people making porn. We have a much bigger sample size, and we're already starting to see some of the negative effects of it. And this makes my next question, I normally ask a guest, such an awkward shift, but <laughs> in keeping with the theme of sexiness, what's the sexiest thing about Joshua? Such an awkward shift, but... I, you know, I wanted to still ask it because, you know, we're not, the whole purpose of this talk was not to demonize sexuality. That's no, right. absolutely not. I think I, I would think that I would, I would hope. And looking at my girlfriends over the years, I've been married for 20 years, looking at my wife, looking at, I think it's my confidence. You know, it's funny and I, not funny, like, haha, but just funny. And like, an, and I don't know if it's an irony point, but every guest and I'm talking from therapists, from speakers, to models, to the porn stars that we've had on the show, 99.9% .9 have said the sexiest thing is confidence. I think most guys don't understand that. They think it's, you know, a six pack or a giant bank counter or a flashy car, but confidence, is that what you find sexiest in other people? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you are comfortable with yourself and you are and you know who you are so much of the crap in life is going to disappear now i know a lot of people fake confidence but that's fine because eventually you get confident at faking confidence therefore you are confident faking it it's one of those it's one of those things when people ask me how do you become a confident person you just start you just start, you play along, you play the game, you get good at it. How did you get good at tennis? How did you get good at baseball? How did you get good at video games? Practice. And you can practice being confident and eventually get there. It's now time for the quick game where we like to give our guests a chance to run through some entertaining questions. Joshua, are you ready? Absolutely. Awesome. What kind of animal are you most like? Sloth. <laughs> That's just because you're coming back from vacation. I feel like if I ask you, well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 and it just sounds, it's just a lifestyle I can get behind. Uh, how would you describe yourself in just one word? Uh, hmm, that's a good question. One word. Genuine. Possibly the most divisive question ever asked on the show. Should pineapples be on pizza? If that's your thing, that's your thing. As long as you're not hurting yourself or anybody else. <laughs> you know, the answer that I found really depends on where you live. I think people from the Midwest out towards, towards the East Coast are not big like pineapple pizza people. But, yeah, they're, they're, they're not the most open-minded people either. <laughs> but as you move towards the West Coast, and of course, warmer client, and, you know, Hawaii is just a hop, skip, and a jump from, you know, quote-unquote, pineapple pizza is not a ter terrible thing. But what are your top three books? Uh, number one is Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. Number two is uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And number three is I'm reading this book about porn addiction for a friend by Joshua Shea. Favorite movie? Goodfellas. 
Uh, you wake up hungry at 1 a.m. What do you grab from the fridge? Whatever I don't have to prepare that will fill me up. <laughs> what is your go-to karaoke song? Ring of Fire, Johnny Cash. 12 noon or 12 midnight? There's not much difference, so uh, it doesn't matter. Can you name a Care Bear from the 80s? Well, the amount I could name is probably uh, more depressing. Uh, <laughs> that was that was not the answer I expected. I love that answer. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, sad, sadly, the the it's 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 like asking me how many Smurfs can you know can you call out, and unfortunately, way way way, way more than I would like to admit. And I just love. <laughs> the sad tone of that answering. Oh God, I can name a lot more than I wish I could. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the brain space that is taken up by stuff like that and and the lyrics to 1980s new wave songs. I probably could have built a boat with my bare hands, but it's it's occupied by a pop culture of the 80s. I, I love that so much. And uh, last but not least, one of my favorite questions, if not my favorite, who inspires you? nobody interesting answer nobody most people disappoint me we are good and we are bad there's no perfect people in this world i think that defining someone on their five best moments or defining someone on their five worst moments is a mistake just because somebody runs into a burning building and saves a baby it doesn't mean that they're not an asshole when they come out of that building <laughs> i like that because that is to to see people in totality yeah and, exactly you know we're all just we're all one mistake away from being an asshole we're all one great moment away from being the hero and it's you know it, it's almost like you know, it's not a pass fail, but it's almost like an essay question. Like, and that essay's not over until you're over. And at the end of your life, people go, well, you know, he had more asshole moments than he had hero moments, so we can call him an asshole. But, um, and that's the thing. I've, I've learned in recovery that it matters. It matters to me what a very small peep. A group of people think about me. Um, and I had to learn that because I always said, I don't care what people think about me. Well, in reality, all I wanted people to do was love me and, and parade me around on their shoulders. Um, I have had to recognize that the people who tear me down, the people who have horrible things to say, most of them are coming from a place uh, not of logic or not of having all the facts. So how can you take them seriously? Mm. And I never did. But the bigger issue is when people love you, when people are parading you around on their shoulders, well, how much do they really know about you? Right. It's more fun to feel that, but the people who love you probably know you as well as the people who hate you. So how can you take any of their opinions too seriously? You know, and that goes back once again to the, the totality of a person, right? Like nobody exactly. knows anybody 100%. And dear God, we're probably all better off that we don't all know each other 100%. But um, good people, sexy people, that wraps up our interview with the insightful, 
the knowledgeable and the Care Bear expert, Joshua Shea. Josh, let people know one more time where they can find you. Absolutely. On uh, Instagram, on TikTok, you can find me at uh, that corn coach corn like the vegetable that corn coach if you're looking for my website uh best place to go is p the letter p addict recovery and there you can find grumpy bear and cheer bear and share bear and tender heart bear and a lot bear and every other damn bear that i can name as they come together for the vicious care bear stare i remember they would pull that off um yes thanks for joining us this evening and um we'll talk to you soon Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me.